Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. When I interviewed Ken Sahested this past episode, I had assumed it would only be one conversation. But as the interview developed, and especially after I reflected on it afterwards, I realized there was more that needed to be discussed. In the past episode, we talked about Ken's piecework occurring in two sequential settings. First, the formation of the Baptist Peace Fellowship of North America, and then the formation of the church, Circle of Mercy. While we discussed Ken's work in both settings in the last episode, I realized there was more about how peace work takes shape and form in a local congregation that needed further discussion and exploration. I spoke with Ken about an immediate follow-up, and he has graciously agreed. So this is part two of our interview. Well, welcome back, Ken. Thank you for being with me again. Glad to be here. Um, during our conversation uh, in between uh, these episodes, uh, I ask you about, uh, you seem, you're seeming to agree with uh, Rabbi Amy Alberg's uh, three distinctions of peacekeeping, peacemaking, and peacebuilding. Mm-hmm. And uh, you you did agree with those, but then you corrected my understanding a little more uh, about that. And so I'll go into a little more detail about that for us. Yeah, the, um, that is an excellent uh, typology of what needs to be done in situations of conflict. Um, many situations that are severe conflict is you just need to separate the parties. That's what the no- notion of peace uh, uh, keeping means like the UN forces will go into a conflict zone somewhere and separate the fighting parties. Every parent knows that when you have kids and they get into a scrabble, the first thing you do is just separate them. So it's, you know, it's a commonsensical way to think about how you begin the process of resolving conflict. So that's often the first step. Uh, peacemaking step is the uh, stage of negotiation. Um, so you, um, uh, uh, a diplomat, uh, UN, uh, official, a, um, uh, a mediator in a local city, uh, in a situation of conflict, will get the parties to sit down together and say, okay, what do you want? What do you want? And see if there's common ground between the two. There's a classic story about a young boy and young girl arguing over a, a, an orange. It's the only orange left in the house. They're fighting about it. Finally, a parent, a mother or a father sets them, separates them, sets them down saying, okay, what, what is it that you want? Well, as it turns out, the young girl wanted to eat the orange. The young boy wanted the rind of the orange. And so Shazam, there's uh, suddenly, we thought this was non-negotiable before. And now when we realize what, what the interests, self-interests are. So identifying people's self-interest and see if there's a way beyond the um, uh, uh, conflict. And then the peace building is the um, a form of work that anticipates conflict in the future. Um, so building a, um, uh, a, a strong public health system in this country is an essential work of peace building. Um, because so many people suffer because of the lack of health insurance or in, in um, uh, other forms of health inequalities. Um, so sensing ahead of time 
what is needed. The situation in Flint, Michigan, for years now, have had lead pipes poisoning their children. Uh, it's it's a, a disaster. It's it's unconscionable. The governor and several other state um, leaders have finally been brought up on charges for their negligence. Um, but sensing ahead of time what's needed to create the conditions for a flourishing community. That happens within families, within churches, within cities, and within nations and internationally. So peace building is the uh, looking forward into the future for what we need to do today in order to avoid conflict. And I think, uh, I guess what I gained from that more, more fully is uh, that each of those three apply to all levels of conflict, exactly. even, yeah. uh, even, even personal levels of yes. conflict, one-on-one or, or you know. In, the in techniques the may be different between personal and large public, but the uh, general theory uh, of, of what you need to do to prevent, resolve, mediate, negotiate, transform conflict are the same on all of these levels. Well, now let's talk a little more now about uh, the, the reason for this particular episode is that um, at some point uh, you felt a strong uh, compulsion to move from the Baptist Peace Fellowship uh, to becoming a pastor and forming a church. Mm-hmm. So talk about that process, why that happened, uh, yeah. and what was in your mind and uh, how you perceived uh, what that move was about. Well, any person in any leadership position of any institution um, knows at some point that the organization needs new leadership. It's hard to explain uh, in detail. It's hard to rationalize, but I just sensed that I knew it. Um, It so happened that my wife and I and another friend here, Joyce Holliday, were already talking about uh, a new congregation, the the, the, uh, Conversation actually started out fairly whimsically. Uh, Joyce and Nancy and I would take hikes in the mountains here in Western North Carolina. And, you know, like when you're on hikes, you daydream about a lot of things. And one of the things we daydreamed about was um, um, uh, starting a new congregation. What would we do if we were to do that? And it was, it really was uh, 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 more fantasy than reality at first. Uh, all three of us have been parts of congregations that went sour. Um, we've been a part of communities of faith that um, uh, fell apart. So we were kind of um, wounded veterans of faith-based communities on a local level. Um, and finally, at some point, I don't know who said it, but one of us said, listen, we either need to quit talking about this or get serious about this. And so we found ourselves getting serious about it. We wanted a, a, a congregation that emphasized a, a great deal of intentionality. In fact, one of our earliest um, uh, provisions in what eventually was our bylaws that um, every year, every person, including the pastors, had to join the congregation again. There was no indefinite membership. Every year you were required to say, Yes, I want to be a part of this community. And we actually outlined three different ways that you could be a part of this community. From, you know, the uh, every congregation needs an inner circle of deeply committed people, both in terms of their time, their talent, and their finances. But then there are also people who want to marginally 
relate to you and even even on the periphery. We wanted people who really didn't want to make a commitment to be welcome when we come to worship or other activities. Uh, the other thing that we uh, uh, for, um, quickly um, uh, held in common was um, uh, the commitment to do communion, Eucharist, every Sunday. That's fairly uncommon, uncommon in Christian churches. There are some who do that, but uh, we were very, uh, doing communion every week, we it just instinctively felt was really, really important. It's a very um, uh, embodied form of worship and adoration. Um, and we uh, like the word, to, in terms of coming up with the, with the name, it was a significant uh, conversation. We both liked the word circle, or I'm not both, all three of us liked the word circle uh, uh, to illustrate a collaborative leadership style. And we liked the word mercy. Um, uh, and since then, after that, I, I later came up with a formula that uh, mercy is the mechanism that negotiates between the demands of justice and the promises of peace. If you only demand justice, eventually you will get into demanding vengeance. If you only demand peace, you will eventually become quietistic. Let's not trouble the waters, let bygones be bygones. And so the work of mercy ne negotiates between those two demands. So um, those were some of the early uh, commitments uh, that we made. And basically, we just uh, pooled our um, uh, uh, telephone and email lists began and invited people to come to an, uh, 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 an initial meeting uh, for worship. We had 20 people show up, which kind of surprised us. And then we continued having 20 or more people for a time. We thought we would meet in, in living rooms for an extended period of time. Um, by the uh, th uh, sec end of the second month, uh, nobody's living room would seat everybody who wanted to come. So we had to look for space, which was an arduous process. I, I thought there would be an unlimited number of church buildings that had uh, space on Sunday afternoons, which is when we did our worship. We, we started uh, as a pragmatic reason to meet at five and then realized we all liked meeting at five instead of 11 o'clock. Um, uh, it was hard finding space. Uh, it, there was not much availability. We got lucky because of two friends who intervened with the canon at the uh, Episcopal Cathedral in time uh, in town I uh, went to meet with Todd, told him who we were, what we wanted. I assumed, uh, you know, he'll take a while. The church will discuss this for a time. And uh, so, but when we, um, just before we stood up to leave, he said, well, let's go get some keys. <laughs> there, there's some real advantages to being a canon in an Episcopal church. <laughs> you don't have deacons to worry about. Uh, so that's how we, we got started. And it's grown uh, incrementally. It, it never any big jumps in membership, but from time to time we 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 uh, we have an inrush of, of folk, and then there are people living leaving either because they're moving away for our job reasons, or they find that this is not the place 
that they need for spiritual formation. We, we've never assumed that everybody should be a member of Circle of Mercy. We have our uniqueness, uh, uh, both strengths and weaknesses. So that's how we got started. And it's been an enduring um, uh, passion ever since. You talked in um, our conversation between times um, about this being uh, really not a shift in in difference in what you did, but just a shift in scale mm-hmm. uh, between the Baptist Peace Fellowship and um, and the church. It's kind of explain that. Yeah, well, um, you know, the difference in day to day activities are very different uh, when you run a national or international network uh, of folk like with the Baptist Peace Fellowship and a local congregation. Um, but at the heart, uh, it's it's really the same. My commitment. Uh, for, for my entire life as an organizer has been focused on the centrality of building what I call a community of conviction in local circumstances. Um, uh, the work of discipleship always happens on the, uh, in, on the street names that are familiar to you. It happens in your neighborhood, your town limits, your region, um, and if you don't have that local, uh, building a local constituency, uh, you really don't have a movement. Movements require commitment at local levels to, to, to begin with. So my work as an organizer on world hunger issues first, and then on uh, justice, uh, broader justice and peace issues, as always, we've always had a focus on resourcing local congregations. We wanted um, um, uh, to assist local pastors and lay leaders to articulate a notion of faith and provide resources for how members can be uh, effectively involved in the work of reconciliation. The the word reconciliation, which was most important to the Apostle Paul, has been my uh, guiding principle through all of this. The change in venue has just meant, you know, I didn't do well, Sunday bulletins when I was the Baptist Peace Fellowship. I did a, a national international newsletter. Now I do, uh, or I did do, um, Sunday bulletins among many other uh, responsibilities. So the the um, spectrum uh, is very very different, but the rationale is still the same. How do you help people learn to follow Jesus? Learn to repent learn to engage in reconciling work, learn to practice nonviolence, learning to uh, that d- the disarming of the heart is parallel and integrated with disarming of the nations. We'll touch a little more about, because again, in our, in our in-between conversation, uh, you, you mentioned just now uh, the focus on organizing and mm-hmm. uh, as, as opposed to being legislative in interest uh, uh, that, that you saw the importance more on, on the emphasis of organization. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, social change requires both new public policy and new public consensus. I decided early on to focus on the public consensus part. The public policy part is where you focus on Washington or your state legislature or your city council the public consensus part is getting people to work in concert for a common purpose. Um, 
one of Dr. King's least uh, known uh, lines that I love is, um, uh, if you can't fly, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. But keep moving forward. And then he said, uh, the issue of power is to get people at a local level to agree to work together in concert. So uh, the the point is that uh, just not proclaiming the vision, the message, the intention, you actually have to mobilize people to agree to work together in order to accomplish that. Um, uh, illustration from our early days right out of seminary, we lived in part of Decatur, Georgia, uh, uh, encompassed by Atlanta on the east side. Um, my wife um, was working as a VISTA volunteer doing community organizing. So her job was um, to get to know neighbors, to walk the streets, to get to know people, to ask them what it is uh, they felt the neighborhood needed. Um, and then eventually uh, uh, the first public meeting occurred. People came who were interested to figure out how they can improve their community situation. And it turns out um, uh, the thing they wanted to start with is they needed better uh, service uh, of sanitation, of garbage trucks, picking up their trash. They'd had terrible service. The city was, was ignoring. It's mostly poor, mostly black neighborhood. And that was the first thing that they wanted to do. Uh, so Nancy said, yes, let's do this. So she found ways to address this, to speak to city councilors, um, to the mayor's office, uh, to others who could influence this. And then you build from that simple little demand that we get better garbage service, uh, a community is formed. People, neighbors who know each other, who've agreed to take on a task, even as simple and uh, unaspiring as getting better garbage service. And, you know, the um, most people don't know that when the M Montgomery bus boycott started in December of 1955, the uh, Montgomery Improvement Association, which is the name of the movement that sponsored that uh, 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 action, their first request was not integration of the buses. Their first demand was that there be equal seating opportunity so that blacks still would sit at the back, whites would still sit at the front. But if a white person got on the bus and there were no seats available, they didn't require one of the black people to get up out of their seat. Their initial request, demand of the city, was exceedingly uh, minimal. <laughs> it wasn't till later that they demanded full integration. Um, and But getting people uh, of conscience willing to work together for a common purpose was and has been sort of the hallmark of what I do. I don't, I don't discount uh, attention to legislative affairs. I, I often recommend things, promote things, uh, but in terms of my focus of how I actually, uh, the, the strategies I undertake, it's always been on organizing. So what is the legislative part of church? Uh, well, by law, churches can advocate for 
legislation, but not support specific candidates for legislation. There's kind of a gray area in what a church could do. But for instance, um, our church has long been uh, connected with partners in Cuba. So from time to time, we have taken public action to request uh, administration or legislative officials to remove the uh, um, more than five decade old uh, economic embargo of Cuba. So that's, that's quite proper. That's within the law in terms of separation of church and state. Um, a couple of times when we thought um, the first time when George W. Bush looked like he was going to invade Iran, we wrote a public letter and saying, don't do this. And this is the reason why you shouldn't do this. So there are some ways in which congregations um, can engage public policy. Bread for the world is maybe one of the most common ways that people get involved. Uh, Bread for the world is a national organization that focuses on world hunger and food security issues, uh, specifically trying to get legislation approved. So there are a lot of congregations that align with Bread for the World and get their members to write letters, to hold uh, special offerings, to provide uh, resource literature. Um, um, So there are a variety of ways that congregations can speak to public policy issues and should speak to public policy issues. Um, uh, But in the end, um, there must be a significant amount of investment about food issues in your own community. <laughs> you don't just legit, you don't just call for legislation of national um, uh, affairs. You have to be worked in here in Asheville, Mana Food Bank. You have to be concerned about living wages here in Asheville. We support an organization here called Just Economics that certifies uh, businesses who agree to pay living wages. And so there are a variety of ways that we, we attend to um, 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 uh, food insecurity and hunger issues here in Asheville. For a number of years, uh, every December 6th, which is St. Nicholas Day, uh, 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 children and adults gathered food uh, contributions and took them to homes where we knew that were very poor. We would uh, put a box of food on the front porch, ring the doorbell or knock on the door, and then run away because St. Nicholas was known as the bishop in fourth century, what is now Turkey, uh, for giving goods anonymously to people who were poor. So we were pract- We wanted to give our kids a reference for Christmas, Santa Claus, rooted in St. Nicholas' birthday. So those are just you know creative ways that we thought about, um, oh, for a time, there is a program that farmers you can buy a, a, a share in their crop every year. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what uh, CSA, is, I can't right. remember right. what CSA, for several years, our congregation, one of its mission gifts was to the CSA program here locally. And we had the luxury of one of our members that worked in some farms, and they would bring those boxes to our weekly worship uh, service so that people didn't have to make special trips. So that was just another creative way that we attended to issues of world hunger right here in our own town. Okay. It's so much easier to get 
a larger number of people invested in something locally than it is something nationally or internationally. I can see that. I can building, that building that solidarity is the stepping stone for people to do something even more ambitious. Okay. Well, you talk a lot about, um, in, in the last episode, uh, about, uh, discipleship mm -hmm. uh, and spiritual growth as being the pattern disciple or excuse me, let's see the pattern disciplined habitual way of learning to behave differently that promotes justice, peace, human rights, and ecological care. Yeah, that's been um, very important to us. Um, it's important to note that the word discipline, its root word in Latin, means to learn. So a discipline is not something you do to hurt yourself. That's generally the people's association with discipline. It's something that you know, is a punishment. Um, you do something you don't like to do. But in its origins, the word discipline to learn, when you decide what it is you want to learn, then you make certain choices of giving your attention to what it is you want to learn. Uh, and like any student, any eager student, you deny some wishes that you might have, some impulses, in order to pay attention to the teacher or to the lesson. Um, and so promoting spiritual disciplines um, that engage, uh, teaches us um, uh, members of the congregation to engage in the pain of the world, to find places to enter redemptively where creation is falling apart. Um, I mentioned earlier um, one of the principal um, formulations and how I communicate uh, it has to do with uh, that the uh, disarming of the heart and the disarming of the nation are parallel and intertwined. There is a formation that we all must go with. This is the one sense in which I think of myself as an evangelical, that something profoundly has to happen within us that is parallel to, to, uh, with what we do out in the world. Um, um, and so, um, you know, every year we have, um, um, uh, a Lenten group that meets for the seven weeks of Lent. Um, and we talk about, uh, the various disciplines that we have in our personal lives. It could be as diverse as fasting or commitment to working at the food bank or to one of the homeless shelters, uh, uh, a commitment to turn off cable news <laughs> because cable news has a way of making us crazy. So th there are patterns that you decide, okay, I think this will help me become the person I want to become. And so I will give my devoted attention. Um, and so that it's, it's really just a matter of intentionality. How do we want to in how do we intend to spend our lives? Um, and how, uh, what things do we want to learn? Um, uh, and so um, uh, the work of discipleship training um, uh, in all age groups uh, has always been important to Circle of Mercy. Well, you, you, that seems similar 
uh, to uh, John Howard Yoder's teachings and Stanley yep. Howard Ross's teachings on the notion of the development of character. Uh, the development of virtue. Yeah. Do yeah. Virtue is a learned process. It's a, it's equivalent to, or it's parallel to exercise. You strain yourself in order to build strength. You push yourself, not because of you wanting to punish yourself, not as if God loves seeing you suffer, but you push yourself because you have this vision of who you want to become. Um, and so um, uh, some people will talk about discipleship as developing what in the military is called muscle memory instincts, where you're trained to react in certain ways in certain circumstances. Um, a little anecdote I remember when I was a student at New York University, a friend of ours, uh, mine and I were walking one of the streets in lower Manhattan, um, walking along and a man uh, coming toward us suddenly stumbled and fell. Uh, I was pretty sure he was drunk. Uh, uh, you get used to that on the streets of New York City, homeless folk. And my instinct was just to keep going, not paying attention. Well, my friend immediately reacted, uh, uh, kneeled, kneeled down to the man, asked him if he was okay, helped him get back on his feet. Um, uh, and, and this friend had nothing, you know, wanted nothing to do with church at all. He was very clear about that he was not at all a believer. But afterward, I, I, in critical self-reflection, I, I realized this man just obeyed the gospel, <laughs> and I ignored the gospel. And uh, um, I need to learn to be behave like he does. So, you know, he obviously had been schooled in developing virtue. You, you can't solve every problem in the world, but you do pay attention to places where you can be of some helpful or redemptive value. Well, you talked the last time about uh, a fairly extensive process uh, that your church went through to become a peace church. Yeah. Now, what is a peace church? And and talk about the process you went through and why was it so ex extensive? Well, um, the beginnings, oddly enough, one of the family in our circle is a Down syndrome child. He was 17 at the time. Uh, when he turned 18 by law, he had to register with civil, um, uh, with um, not civil service, um, he had to register for the draft, in effect. You have to register with the government uh, in case there is a draft. And these two people uh, had both Roman Catholic and Quaker background and were committed pacifists. And they wanted the church to advise them what they should do. Jody, their son, should they obey the law and go register Jody? Oh, selective service. That's what it is. Should they uh, register him as the law required in selective service or refuse to do that? That got a conversation started in the church uh, that inv involved our young people. In fact, at one point, there was a, a group of parents and, and, and children talking about 
um, refusing to stand and salute the flag and say the Pledge of Allegiance at school in the morning. There was quite a, uh, a long conversation about both involving children and adults about what they would do. We had two children who steadfastly refused to stand and salute the flag and say the Pledge of Allegiance on reasons of Christian conscience. Um, so that was a part of the mix as well. But finally, we, we began talking about, um, well, how can we as a congregation formally commit ourselves to a vision of Christian discipleship that we believe requires the rejection of wielding the sword in defense of the state. And so we started with an adult conversation about this. Um, and then after, oh, I don't know, several months, I wrote a, an initial draft of what I heard all of us saying. Um, so we work, went to work on that draft and talking about various things. Some additions came up, some, some editing happened. Um, eventually, we took it for the, to the entire congregation, uh, including the young people, to begin discussion. Uh, in, 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 in essence, we, uh, the document does not use the word pacifism on purpose uh, because that word has come to mean uh, passivity in part because pacifism and passivity sound an awful lot alike uh, because we do not believe that pacifism means passivity. Does it mean we're quietists um, that we don't um, uh, 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 actively sometimes militantly oppose the, the works of injustice and violence. Um, but the conversation, uh, we knew that if this document were to have staying power that we needed buy-in from the whole congregation. We didn't just want a handful of people to say, okay, here's our church policy. This is going to be it. Take it or leave it. We wanted everyone's input. And so that's the reason we took three years um, uh, from the time we initially started the conversation to the point where we actually had a vote and say, yes, this is, this represents my convictions. And so just kind of in brief, how to the end do you describe what a peace church is? Well, it doesn't, um, uh, I wouldn't say it has constraining um, effect on everybody for everything, but it does mean, um, well, um, two, the two most immediate practical things, we established a register for teenagers uh, if while they're exploring the question of their commitment to nonviolence, whether or not they might be willing to serve uh, in uniform in the military, if they were, it was demanded of them, if they, particularly if they, if they were committed to not doing that, they could register with the church by means of a, a written statement um, uh, that uh, outlined their convictions. Because um, if, if you don't develop a, a history of your commitment to nonviolence, uh, to, to non-observance of, of military service before you were drafted, in, this, uh, in case you were, in case the draft were to happen, 
if you don't have a history, there's a little chance that um, the selective service boards are going to grant you conscientious objector status. So if you think you really are a conscientious objector, um, you need to document that somehow. So the church created a platform, a, a mechanism, a storage file for young people who were uh, articulating their commitment uh, uh, to conscientious objection. And the second thing I think I mentioned in our earlier interview, we established a peace pilgrim fund uh, that would provide uh, small amounts of money for young people to go off uh, in significant boundary crossing experiences. So those were the first two very tangible things. Uh, then we refer back to that document um, in any number of ways. It, it's not something, we don't have a creed that we say every Sunday. Uh, we don't have a requirement that you memorize something if you become a new church member, but it is a, 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 a kind of statement of accountability that we go back to uh, from time to time to see what it has to say, to see if it clarifies our convictions or our conscience. It's a way to communicate our vision and mission to people who are considering membership. So it provides a lot of uh, indirect services, but is not, uh, uh, is not like a church discipline manual that you're going to be brought up before the church council if you do such and such. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, there used to be days like that. Yeah, there were. <laughs> Still are in some places. Yeah. Well, now, you now have personally uh, made a transition uh, from stepping down as pastor mm -hmm. uh, and devoting your time to a new endeavor uh, called prayer and politics. Yeah. Talk about that some. Well, um, most of my career as an organizer has been on very practical things, um, publishing, uh, writing, a little bit of writing and publishing, uh, a lot of pastoral work by phone, by travel, uh, providing resources for local congregations, running a nonprofit, which I tell people who say, I'd like to get in the peacemaking business. And I usually say, well, uh, about 70% of your time is going to spent the same way as small business people. You have to run a small business. You have to run a nonprofit. You have to keep records. You have to make reports to the IRS. You have to work with a board of directors. You have to manage staff. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff that people, anyone running a small business has to do. And I, I, I've always, I always had more confidence in that ability than in my writing. Um, and I finally realized um, it not, it's not exactly a, um, um, monastic call that I said yes to, but it was the commitment to spend a lot more time with my, the seat of my pants, um, uh, uh, uh touching the, the chair, the fabric on the chair and writing that I always felt a, a longing to do more writing uh, than I had time for. So at a certain point, uh, I realized um, I wanted to say yes to this vocation. I wanted to devote a lot more attention to writing. Uh, and so I went to the church council and 
told them what I would like to do to plan in advance um, to relinquish my duties, um, which meant giving up a whole lot of um, uh, part of my duties as a co-pastor was the administrative part. Uh, the administrative work in any local congregation involves a lot more than most people know, uh, a lot of time. Um, so, and that's what I did and have by and large um, stayed faithful to that and doing a lot more writing than I normally would. Um, and seeing that as my, I don't get paid for it. Uh, my prayer and politics blog, I started, um, what, uh, 2016 or 17, I can't remember which now. Um, and it's, you know, it's not a bestseller. I don't have millions of followers, but it gives me the platform um, to do uh, writing, to interpret the signs of the times in which we live, both in terms of the, uh, uh, the significant uh, events in our common body politic, as well as theological and devotional reflection on who we are as people of faith, uh, being in and not of the world, what that looks like, what that means. So that's my, that and being a grandparent, those are my two primary vocations right now. <laughs> well, and so talk about the integration uh, of prayer and politics in this, in this writing. Oh, well, Carl Bart said, um, the, um, the clasping of hands in prayer is the beginning of a rebellion against the state of the world as we know it. So when I talked about in my first session about the beatific vision and how profoundly different it, that is from the world as we have it, uh, right now the, the world is ruled by the rule of gold. Um, uh, those with the goal get to make the rules and uh, the calling to be disciples of Jesus um, is profoundly different. Jesus said, um, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon was not some first century deity competing with Yahweh God for the allegiance of the people. Mammon was a common everyday Aramaic term for money, for wealth, for influence, for power. Um, uh, and so the uh, the profile of a believer lives constantly at odds with what it means to be a success in our culture. Um, prayer is where we stay in touch with that beatific vision. Um, I think it was um, Barbara Brown who talked about that odd text that we've always uh, tried to figure out what it means. Pray, uh, pray without ceasing. How in the hell world am I going to pray without ceasing? I mean, I sleep seven or eight hours a night. I can't pray while I'm asleep. Uh, profound misunderstanding of what that means. Barbara Brown Taylor said, um, prayer um, is like there is a radio signal coming from heaven constantly. And prayer is the work of staying tuned to that radio signal. Because there's so many things that get in the way and block that signal. Our passions, our warped desires, our uh, longing for vengeance, and the struggle, the spiritual discipline, if you could say, is getting back to paying attention to that radio signal so that we can hear 
the instructions, the clarity that we need to live our lives. And so prayer, the, the work of prayer, is the work of admitting that we are not self-sufficient, that we are dependent, that we have a vocation beyond what we normally see, that we are often blinded and becoming deaf. Prayers the world is the way we 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 gain sight and we reestablish a proper hearing of our instructions. Um, it's a way that we learn our identity and we have to clarify that over and over and over. Uh, as I used to say, salvation is not like an inoculation. You get a shot and you're good for life. Um, uh, as the apostle Paul said, uh, work out your salvation with true and uh, fear and trembling. It's a continuous process of staying attuned to what the spirit is doing in the world, what the spirit is saying to us and what the spirit is, is urging us uh, to do. Well, you have given us uh, a lot of wisdom. Uh, you have given us a lot of resources uh, to better understand the work of peacemaking, peace building, peacekeeping. Uh, yeah, as I said uh, before, I think of peacemaking, peace building as a synonym for discipleship. Uh, it's how we learn to practice the work of reconciliation. Well, I'm thankful and for the generosity of your time. I'm thankful Thank you, David. for the insights that you've given us. Maybe uh, so. Maybe and, not. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. We scatter and, uh, seed. Sometimes it goes on on hard ground and sometimes not. But blessings on your continued work. Thank you, David. And I'm looking forward to interviewing your wife. I I think that would be good. She's much better than I am. <laughs> it will be a step up. <laughs> well, you're listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your-